I have friends in the world that say a no is just a yes, not yet discovered or something like that. <laughs> so you just, you have to have that, that mindset and kind of gumption and audacity, even if you're starting with nothing but a dream and maybe a few coins. You know, I have more and more conversations where people of means are starting to say, hey, you know, I recognize my privilege. What can I do to journey along with a black man? Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast. We're so happy that you've chosen to spend some time with us. I'm your host, Trevor Schmidt. I'm an attorney at Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. We work with founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies, start up, operate, get funded, and exit. We are daily inspired by the people we work with and want a chance to share some of these stories with you, our listeners. So whether you're already an entrepreneur, want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success, this podcast is for you. Today's guests are Tom Drogi and Keith Daniel, the co-founders of Resilient Ventures, a committed venture capital fund dedicated to disrupting systemic economic injustice by expanding access to capital, networks, and opportunity to African-American founders. Tom and Keith came together on this venture from much different paths. Tom seems as if he was born into entrepreneurship. His dad's startup IPO'd in the 60s and has led his own software development firm since 1985. Keith went down the higher education path and was at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University for 26 years and was even Duke's chapel ambassador for seven of those years. When they joined forces in 2018, there was a reason they called it resilient. Most people recognize it as a term that we have to be in our life. Going through a pandemic, uh, we started this fund prior to, and so <laughs> we had to really prove the name, right? Yeah. Like, and especially being new uh, in the industry as VCs. But it's a motivating word for me personally, and I just think about the legacy of my community. I happen to be an African-American man, I'm born in the late 60s, and raised by parents who I watched be very resilient in their mm. lifetime. And so the, the term takes on a, a, a significant weightiness and an edge and a re recognition to tribute uh, the way I see it for our community. But it wasn't just one generation that had to be resilient. They looked at this from a historical context too. And the oppression of the black community in America, starting with slavery, and then barriers to owning land, barriers to voting, that takes decades to overcome and it still has an impact on startups today. First, that system created a situation where there's no friends and family. So like the first funding source for a founder is friends and family found. Now, that doesn't exist. Uh, the family, instead of investing in their business, probably sent them to college. Mm -hmm. So that's where the friends and family money went. So how does a VC look at this? Well, they're gonna note that there was no friends and family around. And for most who don't understand the historical implications of why, they're just gonna ding them for that, right? So that's a negative. You know, another one that um, is very apparent, most people don't, don't understand how the black college system was created. It was created because of Jim Crow, which ironically in the North, they didn't have black colleges and they didn't like black people in college either. But at least in the South, you had colleges. So most casual investors, if they look at a Howard degree, a Spelman degree, a Morehouse degree on the resume, they will equate it to a community college because they just don't know. Mm. 
those are just, you know, the start of a short list of how this 400 years of injustice and systems that we created impact us here today. No, I mean, I think it's a good point. And as I think about it, as I think about the entrepreneurial community, I mean, so much of what founder success relies on, it's going to be either network, it's going to be access to capital, it's going to be access to, you know, other business leaders who can come along and provide guidance kind of in those early stages of the company to help them grow. And some of those things that you just laid out, mm -hmm. you know, either family wealth to kind of support the, the company at the early stages, access to capital from outside sources like venture capital. I mean, all of those things from what you've described are at a reduced level. Mm -hmm. So essentially it sounds like, you know, these founders are starting behind the eight ball almost as it were. So, so tell me how does, how does resilient come in to that picture and, and what is it that, that you hope to accomplish to, to help remove some of those barriers? Mm -hmm. Some things are, we talk about in the higher education world, simplicity on the other side of complexity, right? It's simple. We we got to get you capital. We, we, we have to be deliberate and intentional to say how much money do you need and what are you going to do with it? Mm -hmm. At least to ask you the question. If you're an African-American founder and trying to start a high growth company and you're looking around and you're having to walk in the rooms where no one looks like you, right. That's a, that's a barrier in and of itself. Some of us may have kind of transcended that barrier a little bit because maybe we went to, like I did at Duke University, and my networks extend into wealthy white communities, mm -hmm. and I kind of get a little bit of a bias because I wear the Duke ring, you know, that sort of thing. But the reality is if you're not intentionally looking, which our default human biases work that way. Right. You know, you see a guy from Harvard, oh, it, there's a ring to that, Right. But even if as an African-American, what we've experienced after we've gotten all these credentials, we still are unlikely to get in rooms where there's folks who could potentially give us major investment dollars. Mm -hmm. So we were we like to consider ourselves trailblazers in that sense, particularly here in the South, to have an explicit thesis that we're looking for African-American founders with some degree of agnosticism about what, what it is, you're, what solution you're solving as we launched our fund. And quite honestly, I'm here because of Tom's intentionality, having had a wealthy, successful career, acknowledging the privileges and access he's had and says, let's take this charge, just use this as one way. Capitalism is what it is. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, at its worst, it results in what we have today, a horrible wealth gap between the black and white community. And you look at these numbers across the country and you could say, it's because we haven't worked hard enough, but I'll be dog if you're going to tell me that, right? right? Mm -hmm. It's like, but we believe in the mythology of that. I mean, their books are written about, you know, the the black man who kind of was the mm -hmm. exceptional one who all the rest of his friends were hanging out on the corner and right. he decided he was going to, you know, be this super human person and look what he's done. And I'm like, see, that's, there's a problem with those narratives. You're saying that all of the rest that haven't succeeded is because they didn't have that same, you know, personal character resolve. Right. And so I think part of our challenge is we want to be kind of educators to change the narrative, but we also want to be taking some action. So we were like, all right, we're going to put some money in companies, take mm -hmm. those risks that go with every company and do our due diligence and be prepared to deal with the failures and the learnings that we had to have as a startup fund. Right. And that, you know, that put a demand on the, on the, um, the partner community out there, first we're saying, well, why just African-Americans? So we had to share stories like 
So what was it like for Jackie Robinson, right? Yeah. I mean, think about what is it like for an African-American person who has a high growth idea, but they're, think, they're saying, I have no shark because I can't, I can't even get really get started. No one's willing to sort of take a chance on me, right? right. So we kind of entered with that commitment and have had a degree of success that mm-hmm. says, yeah, we, we will prove, we will prove to you. And that gives us some energy and inspiration to kind of be in that space. And since George Floyd's murder, mm-hmm. there has been more and more of a tension and a rush around disparities as it relates to a lot of fields, right? Healthcare, education, VC yeah. being one that kind of really stood out maybe even prior to that, because we saw how limited money was going to women mm-hmm. um, and women have made greater gains, but it's still a, a mere a mere pittance at this point, <laughs> right. a long way to try to catch up. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of follow-up questions I have to that because part of it, I think, where we are culturally and what happened during 2020 and kind of people's responses to that, it seems like there are tremendous opportunities, I think, to, to strike while people are paying attention to it. But at the same time, you know, I, I wonder to an extent as well to do you worry about people using the fund as somehow virtue signaling for themselves that, you know, I'm invested with resilient because I want to signal that I care about it without really taking more definitive actions personally. How do you how do you think about that? How do you respond to that? Is that even an issue from from your side? Mm-hmm. I don't see that so much in the venture world. I see that on Facebook a lot, <laughs> you know, but I think I think virtue signaling is is just a way for those that are opposed to the genuine conversations about racial equity to throw up another roadblock. I mean, they just throw it out there um, to kind of shut down the conversation. And it's not been a concern from our LPs and not really come up. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of putting that phrase in. I hadn't heard it in a while, quite honestly, but I'm putting it in the category of, of resistance to what we've seen historically, you know, my mother was an equal opportunity employment manager for the federal government for 30 years. And that was during the affirmative action era, right? Mm-hmm. And people, you know, they call it reverse discrimination. And then you got to kind of deal with, you know, the mindset of that. Right. You know, when did affirmative action really begin? You know, well, it began with all the advantages that were given to whites mm-hmm. in those years of building our country and the double sword barrier for, for African-Americans not be able to get voting rights and economic opportunities. And we talk about the lunch counter era, right? Just so I can have a sandwich, but I can't own, don't ever think about owning anything. Right. You know, and if we do, mm-hmm. we found ways to strip you of that ownership. So very personal narrative. So if we talk about it, it does sort of, it's, a, it's, a, it's either going to tap a moral compass for someone or it's going to go against all that, our psyche behind the American narrative, America, meritocracy. And that's just going to be what it is. You know, the way the world operates, you're going to have that. So we're okay with that. That's good. And so what's been the kind of the response from investors? You know, I think of a a VC fund, you've got certain different roles. You've got attracting investors to the fund. You've got deal flow of trying to find the companies Mm -hmm. that you're going to invest in. And then you have your responsibility of working with those companies and kind of helping them grow and succeed. So Mm -hmm. taking that first picture of the the investors, what's been the response to – investors to your thesis and to the idea of this company? Well, fund one, like Keith was referencing, we alluded to the Jackie Robinson story and we'd try to bring awareness to investors that just, just like there was a league of baseball players out there, 
when Jackie Robinson was the first there was st- there's another league of entrepreneurs out there right. ready to go our thesis was given access they will excel and i think you know fund one investors did that did resonate with us i believe they identified with that and they imagined that with us but there's other stories that did not work out so well like um we're coming to understand like the Tuskegee Airmen. So I was at the Museum of African-American History and got dug, dug in more into the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. So that was a total experiment. You know, they didn't think that those black pilots had a chance, mm-hmm. but they kind of did it anyway, kind of proved that it wouldn't work. But those airmen in World War II uh, defied the skeptics and they became a fighting force that you see the movie. I mean, they were trusted because the white bombers would be, would say, hey, you know, you guys stick with us. Mm-hmm. You don't go after your little ch- chance at shooting down some other guy. You're going to stay with us and protect us. You bring us home. So they had the best success rate and they, they disproved the skeptics. So they were very successful. I mean, and then what we find out just now is that, you know, Top Gun 2 is out, right? Right. So... You know, it doesn't surprise me, but this is what gets revealed. You know, the Top Gun Award is a, a real award. It was first done in, by the Air Force in 1949. Mm-hmm. And it was a team competition. It wasn't individual competition. Okay. And so this is after World War II. They're training pilots. They got the t- Top Gun Award. It's won by the Tuskegee Airmen. So not only did they succeed in World War II, but they succeeded in winning this award and then you know, up until a few years ago, that award was listed as unknown. The winners of the first Jeez. Top Gun award were listed as unknown. So, like our fun too, what we're trying to say here is like, okay, guys, you know, this isn't a Jackie Rob. This is not imagination anymore. Okay, mm-hmm. um, don't tell us that the story is going to turn out like the Tuskegee Airmen, where you know we invested in eleven companies. They're successful. We proved the model. We're not guilt tripping you anymore. You know, these companies succeed. So, you know, join up, support these companies. Don't let it be another, you know, set of African-American entrepreneurs that remained hidden, you know, when, you know, we're here showing you. Right. It's too early to tell, though. You know, will investors (laughs) respond to that? (laughs) We'll see. So we don't know. You ask us how investors respond. Strong portfolio narrative at this point in year four. You know, we technically invested two years ago. I mean, we got five to seven years, uh, but the fact that they are progressing, they're growing, we got we got the numbers to show it. Mm-hmm. And we know that things can change quickly. Um, decisions can be made, set forth. But that's also a bit of the excitement of the American gene. I mean, the mm-hmm. risks you take, the failures you experience. I mean, we hear language in a lot of speeches around fail and fail fast. But, you know, in our community, again, the African-American community, a lot more riding on on that. If you got one family member, head of household that yeah. said, I'm striking out, you know, don't strike out. Uh, and mm-hmm. if you do, do you have a cushion? Do you have someone to say, okay, yes, yes. what does a pivot look like, you know, in our community, right? A lot of, lot of uh, stories we've gotten from our founders about, you know, the challenges mm-hmm. they've had and this, how inspiring it is to know that they have a resilient fund and, and to see the others. We've co-invested with a no- number of funds. Mm-hmm regionally and nationally and that's that's been exciting to partner with uh, more mature funds that have experienced and expertise and we've been open to learning a lot um, from 
from their mistakes, their successes, and um, believing that, yeah, we can we can be a part of a, a very important solution and growing, growing, um, inspiring more founders too. Right. Um, traditionally, African Americans have been highly successful in managing what we call lifestyle and Main Street businesses. And I always like to recognize the one, one of them that we invested in here locally in Durham, which is a unique Durham brand in the BU Cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dorian's story of resilience and, and visionary and, you know, making it through the pandemic in a, you know, very challenging market sector. And so it's, it's exciting. And that's, that's what we're committed to doing. What are some of your other favorite success stories so far, uh, kind of through, through the fund and through the work you've been doing with your founders? Well, overall, it's just to say that, you know, 11 companies, revenues when we invested in were $7 million, now they're $14 million. Their, their valuations are up 50%. Keith mentioned BU. You know, I'm tracking with Mayavana, a hair tech company out of Atlanta that's uh, basically digital AI for your hair. For a woman to choose between hair care when she has one of 100 different hair types, you know, is a trial and error effort, but if you could if you could have an app that told you what kind of hair you have, it simplifies things. So there's that, and there's, you know, we've had a couple calls when an exit was about to materialize, and, and they haven't happened yet. But um, if you talk about success stories, it's it's the portfolio companies themselves, but it's also the impact that we've had in the community to other white investors. You know, I have more and more conversations where people of means are starting to say, hey, you know, I recognize my privilege. What can I do to journey along with a black founder? Um, I've seen a guy start a family office uh, that already has invested more than our fund. So, you know, the success, we measure it uh, more than just our portfolio company. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's an interesting concept, this ripple effect to yeah. see kind of even if they're not directly involved with your fund, what these conversations and what kind of resilience yeah. presence just in in the community, what that what that can do to, to kind of change the community as well. Yeah. yeah. So how did you two start working together? Well, we have some mutual friends who um so first of all, Tom and I are both committed Christians, mm-hmm. kind of you know, our church, our church life has been a vibrant one. And our, our journey around our faith has been vibrant. Everything was on a mission field and also encountering, you know, cultural difference and recognizing that that the world is a big, big place and people have people all around the world are incredible and resilient. Mm-hmm. And many of these are black and brown folks who are making a way out of no way, so to speak. And we've had, we had a mutual friend who decided that they would live abroad um, for a number of years in Romania and serve that, that space. And when they came back, they invited us to be a part of an advisory group as they settled back into the States and also made a new commitment to marginalized communities, particularly black and brown communities here in Durham. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a philosophical approach that I had heard before, but it was good to see someone who was like, this is how we're going to engage our community, and it's called asset-based community development. And I always think of, I always mention Michelle Obama because she's one of the principal sort of advancers of this way of, of approaching problem-solving and solution-making for what plagues our neighborhoods and communities that particularly are black and brown. So that put us in a space where we were in an advisory role. They were actually educating us at the same time, mm-hmm. and then we were supporting them financially as they made the transition. Fast forward a few years later, I'm, I have left my career in higher education to pursue Christian community development work in particular, became the director of Durham Cares, mm-hmm. a local nonprofit here, 
and then another nonprofit also dealing with marginalized communities, access to jobs, et cetera. And then our church hosted an event around reconciliation and race. And Tom attended that event. And afterwards, we had that kind of after meeting conversation where he was describing to me his journey and desire to see more of his white peers understand racial equity. And and so we partnered then. Uh, I joined him in that educational commitment for mostly wealthy white peers, folks who had means, um, folks who were in positions of power Mm -hmm. to start having an honest reflection about historical um, racism historically and how it continues to um, play out in today's systems. And through that, after a number of these small group gatherings, part of what came up in conversation for us was how about we start a fund and, you know, make that an action step that we take because we're asking people after they spend time with us to say, think deliberately about how you can engage in um, what some people characterize as anti-racism work, I like to call it pro-beloved community work. Okay. And again, my mindset tends to be on the asset side. And so what am I against? What am I for? You mm-hmm. know, what are we mm-hmm. doing? Which doesn't mean mutually exclusive that you're not also right. deconstructing, right? It's one and the same. But again, language always trips us up. I kind of always get a little edgy around when people say, don't say anti-racism or don't say this. I'm like, okay, whatever gets you in the game to do really good work that benefits more than just some. Mm-hmm. Kind of, it was a little bit of a dare. I, I mean, I I had a life at the Fuqua School of Business for almost 30 years, right. running summer institute for high school kids, mostly engaging them with spaces like this and the uh, RTP community. So I had a large network, uh, folks who trusted in, even if I was doing something for the first time, they were like, hey, we want to support you and how can we do that? And so Tom and I, yeah, we set up the LLC and mm-hmm. got, got about the business of fundraising, which again... You do that in most worlds, right? right? Nonprofit world, I had to do that. Yep. Um, higher education. And yeah, that's, hopefully I didn't take too long telling that story. But. <laughs> we wouldn't have gotten to that third thing, though. It was the second thing that I think was foundational, working with creating that material, because I had had, I've been in the conversation on race since the 90s and had relationships, friendships. But what Keith was able to clearly communicate to me that, you know, you go on these journeys and it's got to be about relationship. It's not about, you know, part of our white culture is that we are very transactional. So it wasn't like Keith is just going to help me write this curriculum to help white people understand race. I mean, that that it wasn't going to be just that. It had to be us journeying together um, with relationship and uh Knowing what was at stake, you know, knowing that at any time I could walk away and, you know, it would just be another attempt to make a bridge. One of the things in coming up with Resilient was our recognition that we both lived in the entrepreneurial space for a long time and started to connect all the dots and said, like, you know, Keith was over at Fuqua for 20 years, first management hire there. You know, I was doing the work, you know, with Fred Hutchinson here and the the CED and Triangle. Neither of us were VCs, but we felt we had the transferable skill set. Yeah. So, you know, kind of talking about that, not having been in Mm -hmm. the VC space specifically, has there been any particular learning curve on that aspect of it for you all? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the technical aspects of the field, you know, it's art and a science. You read the books, it's your gut, when you see a founder, you know, you're betting on a team, mm-hmm. you know, to some degree, you're evaluating them on all the things you do if you are hiring somebody. Then you got to determine if 
what levels of risk, you know, mm -hmm. you're already high risk. So what level of risk is a company, you know, that go to market strategy, all these things, all this language I was, you know, being refreshed mm -hmm. on. I've been around it a lot. Mm -hmm. So I got the, you know, the bestseller books on this sort of thing. And then we have a top attorney. Um, and then we have 10, we've, we started with 10 advisors, a couple of them had some transition at attrition because they've, some of them took on jobs where there was presented conflict. Amazing advisory team and investment committee that has also educated us a lot because they're, some of them are, have done startups and experienced that whole journey. Others have been long-term angel investors um, and also others are actually coaches and mentors and consultants um, in a variety of different areas of the business, of business, the startup community. Mm -hmm. Now, Tom, I think I'd read somewhere else that in connection with your your own personal experience in running a business that you've had a very bad experience with the VC. And now it wasn't a VC, it was an angel. Oh, an angel. Okay, Who told but, you that? Well, I think it was, I was reading the WRL TechWire uh, that oh, I was yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, resilient. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, how do, now that you find yourself kind of on the other side of the table, does it change the way you think about it or just making sure that you're doing a better job than the individual you worked with? Yeah, you're right. I, I, I really never thought I'd be on the other side of this. This is the last thing I would want to be would be a VC. And... But what, what I bring to this, I suppose, is I feel like I'm Rip Van Winkle, you know, a lot, literally. So I was, I was running with this crowd in the, in the 90s, 80s and 90s, um, helping build this ecosystem on a shout out to Fred Hutchinson because, you know, all of us there with CED in the early days, like just after it, I, I joined just after it was founded. And we all worked together. Fred was kind of our dad. He was the only legal firm that was really like, they, he was one of a few legal firms that was really focused on the entrepreneurial community. I had that early experience. So in those days, you know, um, it was all new to everybody. You know, there was no, you couldn't go to college to become an entrepreneur. There was none of us were sitting around thinking like, oh, if I fail, I'll get to uh, start another company. <laughs> or I could be a serial entrepreneur, blah, blah, blah. Or like if I fail, if I fail, I should fail fast. That way the VC money will say, oh, he learned from his experiences. And so now let's give him more money. None of that was part of the culture. So waking up 20 years later and re-entering re this community and hearing about all this fail fast and furiously and just go like, what in the world is this? And um, But the African-American founder community, that that's not their experience, you know. They don't get to fail fast. They get one shot, right? The Hamilton. If you if you listen to Hamilton musical, you know that part. You know the one shot. That's that's the entrepreneur, the heart of the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, so, I guess for me, the the energy I get is that I bring as a VC is to reimagine the days when there wasn't a safety net for you didn't have a chance to, you weren't trying to create seven companies. You just want the first one to be good. So now as you, as you think about you, you, Keith, you had mentioned the fact that, you know, a big part of your role as a VC is kind of evaluating the team that you're going to be working with or, or the founding team. Mm -hmm. What is it that a founder can do to make themselves, you know, either look more appealing to a fund like yours or just in general to a fund or what are some red flags that the founder might throw off that make, Make you say either you're not ready for funding now or mm -hmm. you need to get this worked out before you we might take an investment. Yeah, again, as learning learning this business, we really started by looking at what's already been produced to help us with assessment, mm -hmm. right? So 
we created a registry where founders that we use, we just use what Hulu had produced uh, from the West Coast mm-hmm. as a pre-screening, right? So mm-hmm. tell us about your desire for funding, I mean, how much you're trying to raise, what do you want to use those funds for? Do you have evaluation? Which it's important for the founder to have put some real thought and have a real clear message behind this is how this company is valued, especially early stage. Yeah. Can't just throw a number out there. And usually that comes from you've got some good advisors who are who are guiding you. We've seen we've seen some scenarios where, you know, there's there's just not alignment and they, you know, deals don't go through because the valuation is too far off. Right. And we, you know, there's back and forth of how much you focus on that early on, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's a big piece of the founder's understanding and desire. And then, of course, there's disposition around the kind of capital that you're seeking, whether it's a convertible note or you want to give up ownership or share ownership. I don't like to say give up. We've been flexible with founders around their business model and where we see, you know, the risk that we're taking if we do a revenue share, if we do a and then these again things that I didn't grow up around the kitchen table understanding. And when I was in college, that was not a part of my, you know, lexicon of like understanding this world. Mm-hmm. So as a founder, it's important that again you read the same books and kind of mm-hmm. some sense of clarity around when I need the money, what I'm going to use it for, why investors would see that as a good thing. We do want to. We prefer a team, uh, even if you don't have all the pieces there. You need to. We got to hire a chief sales strategist or whatever you need, and you're clear on that and where it's going to take you the next milestones to. Mm-hmm. Knowing your milestones, part of vision, you know, I, I've become, as this stage of life, I've, I don't know, maybe it happens as you get older, mm-hmm. you, people start calling you a visionary because it's like, well, that's all I can do now. I don't have the same <laughs> same energy to execute and implement. And But um, yeah, the milestones are important because you got to convince the investor, hey, you're, this is what your money is going to help us do. Right. And we're going to get to this next stage. We like to see that they've been through typically, you know, some level of accelerator or not not 50 of them, but mm-hmm. they've been through some accelerator program or okay. some kind of something that's helped undergird their trajectory and, and build their base. So those are some of the elements. And is the accelerator important because it's provided some third party vetting or because they've gotten some advisory and experience through that accelerator program? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Both. Yeah. Okay. It's a, all of the above. Yeah. Um, yeah, the ecosystem that you're part of, where you know, most of our companies are here in the Carolinas, so we kind of know, we may know them prior to, or mm-hmm. we, hey, we, we know you've interacted with some of these folks. That gives you a little bit of, that gives you some vetting, yep. you know. Um, but as we've gone around the country, we've come to really respect a lot of these other ecosystem builder spaces. I threw Accelerator out there, but there are other, other ways to, um, I mean, a lot of language around, you know, have you been through any kind of competitions and mm-hmm. where have you landed and, you know, and we've we've tried to inspire that here. I mean, Durham has been a legacy city for co- uh, these conferences and Black Wall Streets and mm-hmm. Founders Exchange. And it's um, so like I've been a member of RTP Capital for a long time, so we learned the whole screening due diligence process. We don't really do anything differently there. I mean, that's all pretty standard. I would say most of our our companies are early stage with revenue, so we look for companies that have product market fit, meaning they're not giving away their services anymore, mm-hmm. and they're not early adapters. These are your regular bread and butter customers. They've got revenue. They're at the point where they need to scale. One of our advisors is a, is a, one of the first African-American alumni from Y Combinator, and I invested in his company as an angel, 
And his company did fail. I mean, mm-hmm. his his he he wasn't able to get enough money after he went to Y Combinator. And as we were doing all the debriefing about what went wrong, you know, his advice to us was, you know, a founder should tell you very clearly what their milestones are and how they're going to achieve them. And then when they achieve them, you fund them again. Mm. Simple as that. So that's. We have 11 companies. The starting revenue of those companies is $7 million, right? And they've doubled the revenue in, in, in less than, on average, you know, less than a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So, again, there's tremendous opportunity out there for those that will open their eyes to see the playing field. Now, is there any part of this that just feels too daunting? Like when you wake up and you mm-hmm. think about the injustices that have persisted for so long and now you're setting out to kind of tackle those uh, through your fund there every day you wake up and you're just like this you know what can mm-hmm. we do it's just mm-hmm. been around for so long and how do you how do you address that and how do you deal with that yeah every day i was asked this question recently about even navigating the question of faith right faith is something something that's been central to my humanity mm-hmm. and in particular christian faith i mean I, I i give a nod to any religious tradition that says people are humans and they deserve the right to pursue happiness and enjoy the freedoms that humans should have. They shouldn't shouldn't have to worry about if they're going to have a roof over their head or not. We need to figure out systems that make sure that everybody has enough and no one has ultrally too much. Mm-hmm. But again, the capitalist system is not going to be fair like that. And many days it's like, you know, yeah, I don't, how are we going to get out of this, right? Uh, the pandemic, mm-hmm as most people acknowledge, has magnified some of these realities, even down to the point of who gets relief, federal relief money, because they had the systems in place and were able to get to that point. You know, uh, there is, there is a, but I, I do have a minister friend who, I love his quote. He often will say, you know, if it's, if it's impossible, if it's good news and it's likely that you will fail, it's probably something you should do. You know, <laughs> and it's it's a weird way of looking at things, but that's what faith is about as well. Mm-hmm. Whether you put your faith in yourself that, hey, I'm going to find a way, I'm going to be successful, I got a dream and it's going to happen, huh. you know, God bless you if you're going to try to do it on your own and be mm-hmm. the superhero, but you need community, yeah. you need people who believe in you, people who have the means to to be able to support you and give you some room to make make the mistakes and grow. And I think that's, that's the role that we're, you know, that excites me. I'm like, if I do have any level of privilege to the degree, whether it's finances or network or relationships, that's how my life has been most enjoyed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I got a bank of stories of mm-hmm. co- college students who said, man, I'm glad I went and talked to Keith because he opened this door for me. When that happens, that's a big deal, yeah. right? If we, When we write checks, that's a big deal. I remember mm-hmm. when going to the bank to mm-hmm. write that first check and then we wrote mm-hmm. one for 250, I think was the largest maybe, right? Follow on investment. Like I've never had any, you know, I've never made that much money in a year. Mm-hmm. You know, now I'm at the bank investing. That's a that's a huge thing. Yeah. And to know that these companies see the value in that, but they also see like you guys aren't just like writing checks willy nilly. I mean, you're challenging us, you're asking us all these hard questions and it's making us better, and then you're introducing us to more people. So that overcomes the all the dauntedness yeah. when you have mm-hmm. those moments like that. Um yeah, and to see other funds that are doing that as well. Well, this might be a related question, but, you know, so what gives you hope? 
hope for the future. The hope side of it. I mean, yeah. I know for me, I mean, hope is a, <clears throat> again, for your listeners, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm an ordained clergy person, theologian. That's kind of the core of who I'm, I'm in the business of being a proprietor of hope for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's in my bones. I mean, I'm a, my family legacy and story is in Durham, multiple generations. So history for me is not that far back, right? When we talk about Black Wall Street, we talk about, you know, North Carolina mutual life insurance. Those aren't myths. Those aren't mythologies for me. I said, if it happened once, it can happen again. Yep. We can have another major. And we've had around the country, you know, these stories mm-hmm. are starting to resurge from Tulsa to to, to Durham to Birmingham. I mean, the work of the Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson is very inspiring, those stories. And, you know, more and more, there's been tension given to this history. Yep. Now, there's been backlash, which is unfortunately the case in our country. You know, people want to ban books and ban these stories because, you know, it makes people feel bad. And I'm like, I'm sorry you feel bad. I, you know, what is think about what it's like to get up every day and wonder if you're going to be surviving today yeah. because of the violence that we experience in the black community, whether it's self-inflicted or from, from some, un, uh, I mean, let's just tell the truth about what's going on. Yeah. Right. But hope is, uh, I've got a friend who she, her, her line is she's a hope dealer. Um, mm-hmm. And I get it because uh, you know, without it, you're, it's just a really hard way to live. I, my heart breaks for people who are in situations where, it's hard to have hope, whether it's because of incarceration, um, whether it's literally or or figuratively because of the way the systems have been set up to kind of really force people into situations where they think that the only way I can survive is to either do harm to someone else or, um, you know, to participate in, in things that are outside of um, uh, what we call gainful employment. And so... I get it. You know, there's there is that reality that's out there, but um, it's my job to mm-hmm. offer that hope. And even if it's and sometimes it's a you have to imagine it, even if it's not happening right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Imagination is key, and I just happen to enjoy that world of imagining the possibility of a different different way of being. And last thing I'll say with that, I mean, there is a from the integration side, but it's, it's important for people to know about our fund is that. We, we are aiming to be intentional about it being an, uh, uh, an explicitly integrated commitment of, of whites and blacks and people of other cultural groups. So we, we are excited about we have a team of folks that represent what America looks yeah. like. And we, we want to ensure that we, it, it, again, diversity, right? I mean, that, that term has been around a mm-hmm. long time, but we go deeper by saying we're going we're gonna to make sure it's just not about having different colors on, on a, you know, on the face of the, of the, of the website. It's mm-hmm. like, no, nah, we, we know these people, we've done life together. We have hard conversations and we know our commitments are from as much of a pure place as any person's commitment can be. Right. Yep. Like we want to make money, but not, not at the exploitation of our founders and not at, you know, in the ways that as hard as it can be to stay out of exploitation and, yeah. and abuse of our founders well being. Yep. Yeah, my hope, simply put, would be that a black founder would be as ordinary as a black quarterback. Simple as that. But and we now have black backup quarterbacks, so there's been some progress on that front. Yet, you know, there are fewer founders that get that can raise five hundred thousand dollars than there are professional athletes that get their 
500,000, it's, it's like way out of line on that thing. So I guess my other hope is that, you know, others join us on this journey. I, I don't want the same mistake. So I want to go back to the Tuskegee Airmen because I left out one little piece of it. <laughs> they excelled in World War II. They won the Top Gun Award. And none of them were hired as commercial pilots. Mm. Although many of them tried, they ended up doing other things. So uh, my hope is that we don't miss. I mean, again, I will just end, you know, Keith and I have demonstrated, and we're just one of 100 funds that are doing this, that are investing in these founders who are underestimated, hidden to most people, and we're investing in them. It's not really rocket science. We're Our thesis boils down to if you provide access to these companies, they will flourish. It's really as simple as that. Uh, there's no other like 10 step process, but will even given the evidence, will it be ignored? Right. And so that that's my hope <laughs> is that it's not ignored. You know, we don't do the Tuskegee Airmen again, where they, they fight for our country. They protect our bombers. They win a top award and then they don't get hired to be an airplane pilot, you know, so that's my hope. That's right. The existing talents is out there and just allow them to flourish. Mm -hmm. So we are the Founders Shares podcast. So I always like to ask our guests, if you could share one piece of advice with somebody thinking about starting a company or who's kind of in the midst of it right now, what would that piece of advice be? I'll go first and let Keith have the last word. <laughs> so totally on a different topic. Like one of the things I learned in my entrepreneurial days was all about Deming and total quality management. So it changed my company to learn, you know, he's a guy, I, I don't know if people even know who I'm talking about on this podcast, but just look him up. He's the guy that made Japanese cars great. So an American uh, industrial engineer, but his seven principles to bring real quality management into your company and to get your company on a, a way of constant improvement, basically. So look, at, look into Deming. It made a big difference in our company. Yeah, I, I still, you know, we all have our stories, right? Yeah. Um, and mine was, uh, I told my high school coach that I wanted to play Division One football. And I was 150 pounds at the time playing defensive end for a high school team that did not lose a game. And later at his death, I found out he was the ninth winningest coach in the U.S. Oh, wow. at the time of his death. Because he made a, because I told him that, he made a call to Duke University to say, hey, we got a kid down here. You, none of y'all are looking at, but you should at least talk to him. So a coach shows up at my school that week later and says, we love walk-ons. I don't walk on unless that happens, mm -hmm. because I, mm -hmm. I thought I would wait a year first and then walk on. But if I waited a year, that would have been one year less of me getting stronger and faster and learning the college system. My mindset to anybody starting a company is that you got you to gotta be willing to tell somebody who's in a position of influence, I got an idea and I think it's worth you taking a look at. Mm. And, and be prepared mm -hmm. for the no's. You know, my coach didn't have to make that call. He might not have made it, right? But if I never said anything to him, I won't look back and have an ACC championship at Duke University in 1989. Again, most of our audience probably don't know that. But all that is to say, I would say to founders that, look, 
you know, you got an idea, you, you, I'm, you certainly have talents and competencies. Uh, you you got to be willing to say to someone, hey, here's, here's where I want to go with this. And if you get a no, that's fine. Yeah. That was Keith Daniel and Tom Drogi from Resilient Ventures. And the website again is resilient-ventures.com. That's R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S.com. If you're a founder or business owner and need legal advice, we'd love to hear from you. You can start by visiting our website at hutchlaw.com. That's H-U-T-C-H-L-A-W.com. We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and we'll talk to you next time on the Founder Shares Podcast.